Hello, and welcome to this CCHCPE podcast compiled by noted tax authorities Sydney Kess and Barbara Weltman. This CCHCPE podcast may be used to earn valuable CPE credit. Please visit the CCHCPE podcast site at cchpodcast.com. At this site, you will be able to enroll in a CCHCPE podcast course. You will also be able to download an outline of the course that provides a summary of and citations for each key point, new case, and ruling, as well as charts, examples, and other valuable information related to our recorded discussion. This CCHCPE podcast contains citations to CCH's services, the Standard Federal Tax Reporter, the Tax Research Consultant, and the Federal Tax Guide. In your course outline, we refer you to the specific paragraphs in these services where each subject is covered in greater detail. If you are a subscriber to the CCH Tax Research Network, you will have the added capability of direct links within the outline to the citations and court cases. You will also be able to enroll in the final quizzer for this course. We suggest that you listen to this CCH CPE podcast course and follow along in your outline. You may print out the outline or view it on screen. At certain times during the podcast, we will ask you to test your knowledge by answering study questions. These study questions are designed to enhance your learning experience. The answers to the study questions are found at the end of your outline. You may pause this podcast at any time to access the CCH Tax Research linked material or to review the study questions. After you have listened to the complete podcast and reviewed the study questions and answers, you will be ready to take the final quizzer. You may print out the final quizzer for review and then submit your answers directly on our CCH CPE podcast site. Immediately after you submit your completed final quizzer, it will be automatically graded. If you successfully complete the final quizzer with a grade of 70% or greater, you will receive the recommended CPE credit. A CPE certificate of completion will be awarded and the certificate will be printable. Please refer to the CCH CPE podcast site at cchpodcast.com for complete information. So now, on with our program. The focus of our program is sophisticated charitable giving arrangements for individuals. Recent tax law changes, including measures in the Pension Protection Act of 2006, have affected some of these strategies. We'll discuss six charitable giving arrangements that provide a benefit to a donor. Deferred gift annuities, charitable remainder trusts, pooled income funds, charitable lead trusts, donor-advised funds, and private foundations. We're primarily concerned in this focus with income tax consequences to the donor, but we'll also tell you about the attendant transfer tax costs and savings. On the whole, Americans are charitable. Even though lower tax brackets and reduced capital gain rates lessen the value of a charitable contribution from a tax perspective, Americans continue to give. According to a June 2007 report by Giving USA, the yearbook of philanthropy, Americans gave over $295 billion in 2006, a 1% increase over 2005 when adjusted for inflation. Giving rose in 2006, even though 2005 giving was boosted by charity for victims of Hurricanes Katrina, Rita, and Wilma, and the Asian tsunami. According to the latest IRS statistics using 2005 returns, those with AGI between $100,000 and $200,000 averaged over $4,000 in donations. You'll find the latest statistics for different AGI categories in your study guide. 
Donors can make outright gifts of cash or property to charity and deduct their contributions within their adjusted gross income limits. However, some donors do not want to part with their property entirely. They want or need to retain some benefit from the property. Or they want to make gifts, but keep some control over when and how the funds are dispersed to charities. There are certain charitable arrangements that allow donors to have their cake and eat it too. We'll cover each arrangement separately, since each can serve a different function from the donor's perspective. We want to point out that we'll be giving a number of examples to illustrate how the arrangements work. Don't get lost in the numbers. They're reproduced in your study guide. Let's look at the deferred gift annuity first. This is an arrangement offered by a number of major charities, including the Salvation Army and UJA Federation, in which the donor makes a contribution to charity of cash or property or both, and sometime later receives an annuity from the charity. This arrangement offers several advantages. The donor can take an immediate income tax deduction, the amount of which we'll explain later. There is little or no cost to the donor in setting up the arrangement. It's typically handled by the charity. In contrast, as you'll see later, private foundations entail expenses for an attorney to draft necessary papers, which are paid for by the donor. Income from the annuity is deferred, typically until retirement years when the donor's income tax bracket may be lower. At that time, the donor recognizes ordinary income from the annuity payments. Income can be guaranteed for the life of the donor and perhaps the donor's spouse. Here's a practice pointer. Because the deferred gift annuity does not entail the same insurance costs as a commercial annuity, the return to the donor may be greater with a deferred gift annuity. And the final advantage, assets contributed to the charity are removed from the donor's estate, potentially saving estate taxes. While advantages can be considerable, the main disadvantage with a charitable gift annuity is the loss of control over the property. The donor's charitable contribution deduction is the difference between the value of the property and or cash contributed and the value of the annuity, based on tables issued under Code Section 7520. In your study guide, you'll find a reference to the IRS publication in which the tables can be found. For example, in July 2007, Sue and Ed Green, ages 55 and 52, contributed $200,000 to a charity for a charitable gift joint and survivor annuity commencing in 10 years. The value of the annuity, according to the actuarial tables, is about $140,000. The difference between the value of the property contributed, $200,000, and the value of the annuity, $140,000, becomes a charitable deduction of $60,000. The couple is in the 35% tax bracket, so the deduction results in a tax savings of $21,000. The actual cost of the donation is $179,000, the difference between the $200,000 contributed and the $21,000 tax savings. Donors have some flexibility in determining the charitable contribution deduction. This is because the annuity can be valued using the applicable federal midterm rate for the month in which the donation is made, or either of the two preceding months. Here's a practice pointer. The higher the applicable rate, the smaller the value of the annuity, resulting in a larger charitable deduction. A charitable gift annuity can provide substantial retirement income to a younger individual willing to wait some years to commence the annuity. For example, in July 2007, Monica, age 35, 
contributed $20,000 to a deferred gift annuity that will commence payouts of $5,100 when she is age 65. For income tax purposes, she is deemed to have made a charitable contribution of $10,115. Monica is in the 35% tax bracket, so the tax savings from this gift are $3,540. The cost of the donation is only $16,460. The difference between her donation of $20,000 and the tax savings of $3,540. Another practice pointer. The longer the donor is willing to wait until the annuity commences, the greater the income tax deduction to the donor. Continuing with the same example, if Monica had chosen to receive her annuity in 20 payments starting at age 55, her deduction would have been only $7,123. The annuity paid by most charities is based on the suggested gift annuity rates, which were approved by the American Council on Gift Annuities on October 16, 2002. Contact information may be found in your study guide. A practice pointer. Residents of New Jersey and New York use rates that differ from the suggested gift annuity rates for certain deferred gift annuities. For example, the rates for annuities deferred for more than 20 years are based on a different compound interest factor, depending on the gender of the annuitant. To decide which rate to use, follow the guidelines contained in your study guide. Here's another practice pointer. The annuity rates are different from the rates used to determine the value of the annuity for purposes of figuring the charitable contribution deduction. The income tax rate depends on the donor's age. For example, if the donor is 65, the rate is 7.2%. Although the donor is entitled to an immediate tax deduction, the donor also reports taxable income when the annuity commences. A portion of each annuity payment to the donor is a non-taxable return of investment the balance is taxable. As a general rule, the taxpayer excludes a portion of each annuity payment representing the tax-free investment return. The excludable portion of each payment is determined by multiplying the amount received by a fraction called the exclusion ratio. The numerator of the fraction is the taxpayer's investment in the contract. The denominator is the expected return under the contract. Once the taxpayer fully recovers the investment in the contract, there is no further exclusion. If the donor dies before full recovery, the unrecovered amount can be taken as an itemized deduction on the donor's final tax return. A practice pointer. The donor must recognize gain on appreciated property used for the gift annuity pro rata over the donor's life expectancy. This is because the donor is exchanging property for an annuity. This required gain recognition does not apply to certain other property donations to be discussed. Frequently, a donor elects to receive a joint and survivor annuity. If the joint annuitant is a spouse, there are no gift tax consequences. However, if the annuitant is someone other than the donor's spouse, the gift to the survivor is a future interest that does not qualify for the annual gift tax exclusion. If the donor predeceases the co-annuitant, the value of the annuity includable in the donor's estate is based on what it would cost to buy a comparable commercial annuity. However, if the co-annuitant is the donor's spouse, then the gift qualifies for the marital deduction, provided that the spouses have the right to receive any payments prior to the death of the surviving spouse. Here's a planning pointer. Since the annuity payments rest on the promise of the charity, 
This arrangement should be undertaken only with a large, reputable organization whose continued existence the donor is sure of. The next type of charitable arrangement we'll discuss is a charitable remainder trust, or CRT. These are arrangements in which the donor or other non-charitable beneficiaries enjoy an income interest, with the remainder passing to charity upon the beneficiary's death. The income interest may run for the life of the donor or other non-charitable beneficiaries, or for a term of years up to 20 years. The donor can claim a current charitable contribution deduction for the value of the remainder interest passing to charity. To qualify for a tax deduction for the remainder interest where there is a non-charitable income beneficiary, such as the donor, the trust must be in the form of either a charitable remainder annuity trust, called a CRAT, or a charitable remainder unit trust, called a CROT. Both types of trusts must meet certain requirements. The payout percentage cannot be less than 5%. The trust cannot have a payout percentage exceeding 50% of the trust's value. And the value of the charitable remainder interest must be at least 10% of the value of the property transferred to the trust, based on IRS tables. Let's look at the following example to see how the charitable remainder trust operates. Let's assume that Anita and Carlos, ages 69 and 72, transfer to a CRAT $50,000 worth of stock with a cost basis of $20,000. The trust provides the donors with an annuity of 6% of the trust's value, or $3,000 annually, for life. The trust can sell the property and reinvest in assets that will produce this amount of income. The donors are not taxed on the stock's appreciation when they transfer the stock to the trust, nor are they taxed on the gain when the trust sells the stock. Further, Anita and Carlos can claim a charitable contribution deduction of $16,698. This deduction is based on IRS tables used to value the remainder interest. If the donors are in the 35% tax bracket, this results in an income tax saving of $5,844 which is the deduction of $16,698 multiplied by their 35% tax bracket. The donors report income from the trust under normal trust rules. In effect, they report income distributed to them as indicated on the trust's Schedule K-1. There is an ordering rule for distributions from the trust. Under the rule, distributions are deemed to consist of income subject to the highest federal income tax rate in effect at the time of the distribution. First, the distribution is treated as ordinary income to the extent of the trust's current and undistributed ordinary income from prior years. Second, the distribution is treated as capital gain to the extent of current and undistributed capital gain. Third, the distribution is treated as current and undistributed income that's neither ordinary income nor capital gain. And fourth, the distribution is treated as a distribution from corpus. The IRS has issued final regulations on the ordering rule for characterizing distributions from CRTs. The final regulations reflect changes made to income tax rates by the Taxpayer Relief Act of 1997, the IRS Restructuring and Reform Act of 1998, and the Jobs and Growth Tax Relief Reconciliation Act of 2003, including changes to the rates that apply to capital gains and qualified dividends. Within this ordering rule, capital gains are taken into account in the following order. First, short-term capital gains are taken into account. Second, long-term capital gains fall within the 28% bracket, 
the 25% bracket, or the 15% bracket, depending on the nature of the asset, and are taken into account accordingly. For example, a charitable remainder trust has as its only income a net short-term capital gain of $5,000, a long-term $15,000 gain at 28%, a $5,000 gain at 25%, and a $30,000 gain at 15%. If the trust makes a distribution to the income beneficiary of $25,000, it's treated as $5,000 of short-term capital gain, $15,000 of long-term gain at 28%, and $5,000 of gain at 25%. The $30,000 of long-term gain at 15% is undistributed gain carried over to the next year. The trustee must report each category of capital gain separately on Form 5227, Split Interest Trust Information Return. The fiduciary must also file Form 1041-A unless all net income is required to be distributed currently to the beneficiaries. Here's a planning pointer. Where the income beneficiary is the donor's spouse, a marital deduction is allowed for the interest passing to the spouse, even though it is only an income interest. In the context of a charitable remainder trust, the spouse's interest is not treated as a non-deductible terminable interest. We mentioned that there are two types of charitable remainder trusts, CRAT and CRUT. They each generate the same type of income tax deduction for the donor. Here's how they differ. The CRAT has a fixed annual income payout based on a percentage of the initial assets transferred to the trust. If income proves to be insufficient to meet this payout amount, then principal must be tapped to meet it. The CRUT has an income payout based on a fixed percentage of the value of the trust assets determined annually. The trust is allowed, but not required, to authorize the use of principal if income proves to be insufficient to meet this income payout amount. A practice pointer. The CRAT provides certainty of income to the donor. In contrast, the CRUT provides more flexibility. If assets appreciate, the CRUT will result in greater income to the donor. Also, additional assets can be contributed to the CRUT. A CRAT is fixed from the outset, and assets cannot be added. Charitable remainder trusts can be used to convert non-income-producing property into an income interest for the donor. For example, assume Harry owns highly appreciated, low-yielding securities. Harry is given an income interest based on the value of the property contributed to the trust, not on the income the property produces. The trustee can sell the property to generate more income for Harry, and he is not taxed on the appreciation from the property contributed to the trust. The charitable remainder trust can also be used effectively to provide benefits to the donor's family, assuming the client is charitably inclined. Let's say Marlene owns land that has appreciated. Marlene has a daughter, Mary, whom Marlene wishes to benefit from the use of the property. Marlene can set up a charitable remainder trust and use the tax savings from the charitable deduction generated by the creation of the trust, plus annual income payments from the trust, to provide a life insurance policy for Mary. On the other hand, if Marlene had bequeathed the land to Mary without the CRT having been created, the bequest would have been reduced to the extent of estate taxes. Of course, one must also consider the alternative cost to the heir, that is, that the inheritance is reduced by the charitable bequest. So, assuming Marlene is in good enough health to be insurable at an affordable price, she benefits not only the charity, but Mary as well.
One drawback to the Charitable Remainder Trust is the cost of setting it up. The trust must meet all IRS requirements in order to deliver the promised tax benefits, so getting qualified legal help is mandatory. The IRS has issued sample forms for Kratz and Krutz that should be used in setting up either of these trusts. Using the IRS forms will ensure that all tax law requirements are satisfied so that a charitable deduction will be allowed. Citations for these sample forms can be found in your study guide. Married persons must use special care with CRTs because of a spouse's right of election in some states. The IRS has issued a revenue procedure providing a safe harbor for any crat or crut that is created by the grantor if, one, the grantor's surviving spouse has a right under state law to elect on the grantor's death to receive a statutory share of the grantor's estate, and two, such share could be satisfied in whole or in part from assets of the crat or crut which provides that no amount other than the annuity payments or the unitrust payments may be made to any person other than a charitable organization. To qualify for the safe harbor, the spouse must irrevocably waive the right to elect his or her statutory share in the manner prescribed. For trusts created before June 28, 2005, the IRS will disregard the right of election, even without a waiver, but only if the spouse does not exercise the right of election. How do CRTs compare with charitable gift annuities? There are three main differences. The first difference relates to the source of the annuity. The non-charitable income recipient of an annuity trust relies on the trust property as the source of the annuity, whereas for a gift annuity, an annuitant relies on the general creditworthiness of the donor organization. The second difference concerns the recognition of gain or loss at the commencement of the arrangement. The donor of an annuity trust is not required to recognize gain on the contribution of appreciated property to the trust. A gift annuity is part charitable gift, part purchase of annuity. So, this arrangement is treated as a bargain sale of the property to the charity for the value of the annuity, resulting in gain recognition by the annuitant under the bargain sale rules. The third difference is the cost of setup. There is no cost to the donor when making a contribution to a deferred gift annuity. Fees for setting up a charitable remainder trust can run several thousand dollars. At this time, please refer to the study questions in your outline. An individual who wants to obtain the same results produced by a charitable remainder trust, income and a tax deduction for the remainder interest, can accomplish almost the same thing for less cost with a pooled income fund. A pooled income fund is an irrevocable trust maintained by a charitable organization to which many individuals contribute property. The contribution to the charity becomes part of a pool of contributions, and the donor's income interest is his or her share of the income produced by the pool. A donor with less than substantial amounts of accumulated wealth may consider a pooled income fund as an alternative to a CRT. The pooled income fund is designed as a vehicle to accept transfers too small to justify the establishment of a CRT. As a rule of thumb, if the amount of the gift is under $100,000, a donor should consider a pooled income fund, given the cost of setting up and administering a charitable remainder trust. There are no fees to the donor for making a donation to a pooled income fund. Like a charitable remainder trust, the donor is entitled to income from the fund. The annual income payout to the donor is not fixed. It depends on the performance of the pool each year and must be paid out. It cannot be accumulated for any beneficiary.
The fund and its beneficiaries are taxable under the rules applicable to trusts. At the death of the last beneficiary, the remaining value of the gift belongs to the charity. Here's a practice pointer. The donor should investigate the past performance of the fund to assess its income potential. The donor's charitable deduction is based on the present value of the charity's remainder interest. This is figured by subtracting the life interest, or term interest, from the entire value of the property contributed. If the fund has been in existence for at least three years before the year of the contribution, then the value of the life interest is based on the highest rate of return earned by the fund in any one of those three preceding years. For example, say in July 2007, George, age 65, transfers property with a fair market value of $10,000 to a pooled income fund. The fund's highest rate of return in the three preceding years was 8%. George's deduction for the contribution is $3,321, based on the actuarial value of the remainder interest passing to charity. If the fund is newer, the value of the life interest is based on the highest annual average of the monthly federal rates for the three calendar years preceding the year of the contribution, minus one percentage point. Here's a planning pointer. The higher the fund's performance, which translates into a higher value for the income interest, the smaller the charitable deduction. The fourth charitable arrangement we want to tell you about is the Charitable Lead Trust, or CLT. This arrangement is essentially the flip side of the Charitable Remainder Trust. It's designed for wealthy individuals who aren't concerned with income or the income tax deduction for the donation. It's a technique intended primarily for charitably inclined donors who wish to save estate and gift taxes. Donors can use a CLT to benefit a charity while retaining ownership of property for themselves or their heirs. The charity gets the income from the trust, but at the end of a fixed term or the life of the donor, the property reverts to the donor or passes to named non-charitable beneficiaries. For example, Donna creates a charitable lead trust funded with some growth stocks and some income-producing stocks. Income inures to the charity's benefit for the term of the trust. At the end of the term, the stocks, which hopefully will have appreciated over the term of the trust, pass to her children. The original gift to the children is valued at the time the CLT is created, based on the value of their remainder interest in the stocks, less the charity's term interest. In other words, for a current tax cost of less than the entire value of the property before appreciation, the beneficiaries will ultimately receive the appreciated stock. It has been reported that Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis used this technique to transfer funds to her children, John and Caroline. If the remainder men are the grantor's grandchildren, a taxable termination results for generation-skipping transfer tax purposes when the charity's income interest terminates. Here's a practice pointer. A CLT may be a good way to pass closely held stock or other business interests to the next generation at a reduced transfer tax cost. There is no requirement that the charity receive at least 5% of the initial or annual value of the trust, unlike charitable remainder trusts. So, little or no income to the charity does not prevent a gift tax savings for the remainder interest. The donor can take a charitable contribution deduction for the value of the income interest, which is based on the present value of that interest to the charity provided under the terms of the trust. However, the deduction generally cannot be claimed unless... 1. The donor is taxed on the income payable to the charity under the grantor trust rules. 
and two, the trust is in the form of an annuity or unit trust interest for the charity. This is not always the case, so the income tax deduction for the charity's interest is usually not the prime motivation for creating the charitable lead trust. At this time, please refer to the study questions in your outline. Wealthy individuals who want to provide a substantial benefit to charity, while keeping some control over how funds are managed and dispersed, may want to set up a private foundation. Here's a practice pointer. In view of the high cost of setting up and administering a private foundation, it tends to be used by those with sizable assets to contribute. Rule of thumb, $1 million or more. A private foundation is a separate entity in the form of a trust or corporation that's required to distribute a certain amount of its annual income to charity in order to maintain its tax-exempt status. Most incorporated private foundations are set up as non-stock, non-profit corporations, and articles of incorporation are usually filed with the Secretary of State. A private foundation organized as a charitable trust is governed by a trust instrument that appoints initial trustees, sets forth their powers, and provides for selection of future trustees. A foundation is generally required to distribute its minimum investment return, which generally equals 5% of the foundation's net investment assets. A number of other restrictions apply as well. Also, all private foundations must file an annual information return on Form 990-PF, reporting gross income, receipts, disbursements, and the like. Donations to a private foundation are deductible for income tax purposes. As with gifts to public charities, however, there are deduction limitations based on the donor's adjusted gross income. For example, gifts of appreciated property to a private foundation, such as stock or real estate, may be deducted up to 20% of the donor's adjusted gross income, with five-year carryover privileges for amounts in excess of the 20% limit. Another practice pointer. Individuals with substantial IRAs may want to name a private foundation or other charitable entity as the IRA beneficiary. Usually, the portion of an IRA that can be consumed by the combination of estate and income taxes can be substantial. But because the foundation is tax-exempt, it will not pay income or estate tax on receipt of the IRA funds. In effect, funds that would otherwise pass to the federal government as taxes can be used to benefit a charity. The IRA owner's children often can manage the foundation and be paid for their services, thereby recouping some of the benefit lost by not inheriting the IRA. No charitable organization, whether classified as a public charity or as a private foundation, may be organized or operated for the benefit of private interests, and no part of the net earnings of any charitable organization may inure to the benefit of any insider or other person having a personal and private interest in the organization's activities. So, private foundations, in addition to being subject to the general restrictions imposed on all charitable organizations, are subject to a number of other detailed rules and regulations governing their activities, which are designed to strengthen the basic provision against private benefit. These rules and regulations, commonly known as the private foundation rules, describe certain prohibited transactions and activities, including prohibitions against self-dealing, taxes on excess business holdings, and taxes on jeopardizing investments. The Pension Protection Act of 2006 increased the penalties on self-dealing and other prohibited transactions involving private foundations. Instead of setting up a private foundation, 
which is a charitable strategy useful only for wealthy individuals with substantial assets to commit to charity, individuals can use an alternative vehicle to accomplish similar goals. This alternative, called a donor-advised fund, permits an immediate income tax deduction for contributions. However, donors can only suggest but not mandate the charitable purposes for which the disbursements from the fund should be used. Contributions can be made to the following. Community foundations. However, under the Pension Protection Act of 2006, no deduction can be claimed for contributions to a sponsoring organization that is a veterans organization, fraternal society, or cemetery company. And commercial funds, such as Fidelity's Charitable Gift Fund, the Schwab Fund for Charitable Giving, or Vanguard's Charitable Endowment Program. Investment minimums and websites for further information can be found in your study guide. Under the Pension Protection Act of 2006, to claim a deduction for contributions to these funds after February 13, 2007, the donor must obtain a written acknowledgement from the fund that the fund has exclusive legal control over the assets contributed. Here's a practice pointer. Commercial donor-advised funds charge administrative fees which are disclosed in the fund's prospectus. We should point out that the Pension Protection Act of 2006 directed the Treasury to undertake a study of donor-advised funds and to report its findings to congressional tax committees by August 17, 2007. The findings may lead to future legislation concerning this charitable giving strategy. In conclusion, philanthropic individuals with disposable income can achieve tax breaks while benefiting their favorite causes using a variety of charitable strategies. Individuals should work with a knowledgeable practitioner to select the best strategy for their situation. At this time, please refer to the study questions in your outline. And that concludes this CCH CPE podcast. As a reminder, if you're interested in earning valuable continuing professional education credits, please enroll in this course at cchpodcast.com. In our next CCH CPE podcast, we'll focus on another area of importance for your practice and we'll provide commentary on some current developments that can be useful to your clients. We thank you for listening to this edition and hope you have found this program to be a valuable and interesting learning tool. And on that note, we'll bring this CCH CPE podcast to a close. Until our next podcast, goodbye and good luck in your tax work. CCH audio programs are published to promote sound thought in economic, legal, and accounting principles relating to tax and business law. CCH's editorial policy is to allow frank discussion in these areas. The opinions and interpretations expressed are those of the authors. CCH is not engaged herein in rendering legal, accounting, or other professional services, and the authors are not offering such advice in this program. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.